Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. You can subscribe to Seekers and Scholars through Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we're delighted to be with you for this episode, in which we'll be discussing public health and religion during the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host, and I'm so pleased to welcome into the conversation Hannah Ellingson. Hannah is a graduate student in the Department of Religion at the University of Illinois. It's wonderful to have you here with us. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to talk with you again. It's, it's nice to talk with you again, and the again refers to the opportunity that we had. And when I say we, it's me and Mike Hamilton, who is executive manager of the Mary Baker Eddy Library, and he's also participating in this recording. Hi there, Mike. Hi, Jonathan. It's great to be here. So Mike and I were invited to listen in and participate to some extent in a presentation of a seminar that was being conducted at the uh, University of Illinois' Department of Religion under the auspices of Professor John Ebel for a course on American religious history, 1900 to, I think, 1941, was it, uh, Hannah? Correct. And the seminar was on the American religious response to the Spanish flu epidemic. And that's how we got to know you, Hannah, and that's how we became inspired to want to have you as part of a Mary Baker Eddy Library Seekers and Scholars podcast. So thank you so much for agreeing to share some of what you presented during that seminar. So Hannah, what was involved in developing a strategy for dealing with this complicated subject of religion, public health, and the Spanish flu epidemic? As we were all reading and discussing things through the lens of what we were experiencing with COVID-19. It became clear to us both that it might be nice to work on something together so we we wouldn't be working in isolation as we were self-isolating in quarantine and to be able to research something that was relevant to the present moment. Looking at as many different uh, distinct religious groups in American society as we could. So we looked at uh, Buddhists, Episcopalian, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, kind of a whole slew of subgroups. I ended up focusing on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Presbyterian, Catholic, and Jewish communities. It was really a privilege to get to familiarize myself with all of those communities and hear what they had to say a hundred years ago. Mike, tell us the background on how you got involved in researching on this topic of uh, public health, religion, and the Spanish flu epidemic? Well, Jonathan, as the current situation developed, we realized that Christian scientists, of course, in their own history, had been involved in responding in that period about 100 years ago. We also have a very robust research team that answers questions from hundreds of people each year And we began getting questions from some of our patrons about the response of Christian scientists at that time. So it was just natural to begin looking into it a little bit more deeply. So Hannah and Mike, what were your resources? What what did you use to explore this subject? So it was a real challenge with the libraries being closed, but we were actually able to find an amazing 
wealth of resources online. There is a website, I think, run by the University of Michigan, uh, influenzaarchive.org, that just has thousands and thousands of digitized newspaper articles about the 1918-1919 epidemic. So that was a really valuable resource, as well as uh, the more local newspaper articles available through the University of Illinois library website. So, Mike, what kinds of materials did you find valuable for researching the Christian science response to the 1918-1919 Spanish flu epidemic? We were particularly interested in how Christian scientists saw themselves in response to that pandemic, and we found ourselves searching in one source that would be familiar to our listeners who are Christian scientists themselves, and that is the Christian Science Periodicals. There we found many firsthand accounts, especially in the ongoing section of testimonies that runs in each issue about uh, Christian scientists recounting healings related to the epidemic. Mm -hmm. We also found that the Christian Science Monitor, the newspaper founded by Mary Baker Eddy to serve the public, had really covered this epidemic in some depth, both reporting on it, editorializing about it. A resource we hadn't expected came to the surface, and that was a book called Christian Science Wartime Activities. It was published in 1922, but it was primarily concerned with Christian scientists' activities around the Great War, World War I. Mm -hmm. And since the Spanish flu came at the end of that war, at that period, Christian scientists found themselves in their ministrations to uh, the troops engaged in uh, that conflict, also ministering to people who were in some way affected by the Spanish flu epidemic. We did find also that the Christian science periodicals quoted articles from other news sources. And so we were interested to see what kinds of things were they calling to their readers' attention about the Spanish flu? Your work, Mike, resulted in an article that was posted on the library's website, the title of which was, How Did Christian Scientists Respond to the 1918-1919 Spanish Flu? And it uh, is rich in quotes from these different sources that you just identified. But one that I thought was particularly interesting and relevant to our conversation came out of the Christian Science Sentinel of November 18th, 1918. In it, they reprinted something from a Philadelphia publication, the Public Ledger, from October 18th, 1918. As you probably know, Philadelphia was among the hardest hit cities by the Spanish flu so in the public ledger, they covered the petition of Episcopal clergymen. Just before I read it, I just want to identify a couple of the people that are in this quotation. They mention a director, Crusen. He was public health director for Philadelphia in this time, Dr. Wilman Crusen. And they also quote John Fisk, who was a popular 19th century American philosopher and historian. Quote, 21 Episcopal clergymen met in the church house yesterday, October 17, and adopted the following remonstrance on the church closing order, which was promptly sent to Director Crusen. We, the undersigned clergymen of the Episcopal Church in the Diocese 
of Pennsylvania do hereby protest against the closing of the churches and places of public worship because of the prevailing epidemic. We recognize fully the seriousness of the situation, and we are doing all we can to help the sufferers and prevent the spread of the disease. But we believe that such a trouble calls for renewed and redoubled public prayer and worship, that God, our only help in time of need, may recognize our trust in him and send us relief. And here they quote Fisk. None of us can deny, writes John Fisk, that religion is the largest and most ubiquitous fact connected with the existence of mankind upon the earth. And then they go back uh, from the Fisk quote and say, religion bids us appeal to God at all times, and that not only privately, but by public prayer in church. Such has everywhere been the custom for centuries, and the people, even those who are not professed Christians, expect it. They look to us as ministers of God to lead them in public supplications, end of quote. So that's a very robust, full-throated petition from the Episcopal Church in Philadelphia during this time. So Hannah and Mike, how does that square with the groups that, that you looked at? I think that this was a very common sentiment across many different religious groups then, uh, as it still is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are, I've noticed, a lot of groups that are kind of in agreement with this general sentiment that conducting religious services would strengthen uh, the morale of the people in a way that would be directly beneficial to their physical health. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, uh, Cardinal Gibbons, who was an important figure in the American Catholic Church, Cardinal Gibbons of Baltimore, is quoted in the Baltimore Sun uh, as saying, quote, I am persuaded that closing the churches is calculated to increase alarm, whereas attendance at church has a tranquilizing, soothing effect and is calculated to strengthen the minds and souls of our people and turn their thoughts to God, the source of all strength. So he's kind of echoing what you read from this group of Episcopal clergymen protesting the closure of churches, uh, but he also goes on to say that if it's what the Department of Health decides is best, then the diocese will comply with those orders. So there's a desire to congregate, uh, but also to demonstrate their compliance with local officials. So there's a lot of variation, actually, within the Catholic Church. So while Cardinal Gibbons is kind of taking this stance of contested compliance with orders not to congregate, uh, in Philadelphia, which, as you mentioned, was a really hard-hit city, Archbishop Doherty kind of took an opposite approach of immediate compliance with the closure of churches uh, and thinking about how the resources of the Catholic Church in Philadelphia could be put to use combating the epidemic. Mm. So while church services were suspended uh, beginning October 3rd, uh, when the city closed churches and schools, All uncloistered nuns were sent to work as nurses in the city. Um, There are stories of cathedrals and churches being converted into makeshift hospitals. There are stories of seminarians who are set to work digging graves rather than devoting their time to studying the Bible. 
So in some cases in the Catholic Church, we really see not only compliance with the closure of churches, but also shifting of focus, uh, maybe from strictly theological uh, responses to the epidemic to a more material approach to trying to solve it. Mm. Uh, But then in Cincinnati, there's a story of St. Joseph German Catholic Church trying to hold services in spite of the closure of religious congregations throughout the city uh, and actually being shut down by police. So even within uh, the Catholic Church in America, you have this vast array of responses uh, varying not only on local factors and circumstances in different cities, but also just on the personality of individual clergy members. Yeah, it sounds like there is this kind of frustration and tension between being able to respond to the spiritual needs, emotional needs of Uh, the respective congregations, and at the same time be respectful of what is appropriate for public health protections. How does that come out, that desire to be of spiritual help in the context of a situation where that seems to be getting constrained? Jonathan, that's really kind of an interesting way into looking at Christian scientists' responses to the whole situation of a hundred years ago. Interestingly, the chapter that's most concerned with the Spanish flu and Christian science wartime activities is called Unselfish Labor Rewarded, and it emphasizes the ways in which groups of Christian scientists and individual Christian scientists responded to help, in this case, particularly uh, soldiers and sailors and Marines. The emphasis here doesn't seem to be on whether or not church services can be held, perhaps because of uh, Christian science practice of spiritual healing, the emphasis is on how these individuals, volunteers uh, in many cases, were able to benefit people who were sick, how they brought the healing ministry of Christian science to the situation that they found themselves in. Something that I briefly want to note that we haven't touched on yet is that the most severe wave of influenza was actually occurring right as World War I was concluding. Mm. So the American public at this time were not only concerned with responding to the ravages of a disease that they didn't yet fully understand, but also with conflict internationally. So there was a lot on their minds as they were thinking about how to respond to this epidemic, but also concerned about loved ones who were fighting abroad. So the responsibility on the shoulders of church leadership, it's just impossible to overstate Mm -hmm. um, how heavy that must have been. So Hannah, that's fascinating what you were talking about in terms of the heaviness that was felt by religious leaders during the Spanish flu epidemic. And it also reminds me of something else that came out during the seminar presentation, and that is how different religious groups saw meaning, religious meaning, in the events of that period. Absolutely. One of the most fascinating elements of my research was 
the theological responses prompted by this tragedy. Mm-hmm. So with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there is a response at the general conference in spring trying to make sense of the massive losses. Uh, over 1,000 members of the church uh, passed away due to influenza. And Elder Melvin Ballard gave testimony at the general conference uh, speaking about these losses and saying, quote, the Lord was speaking through those who have been taken, those 1,000 who have gone from us. The Lord is speaking through them to the whole church, crying repentance unto us, end quote. So in the view of Melvin Ballard and many others in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this epidemic is intended as kind of a divine wake-up call uh, to people who may have been neglecting their duties or not taking their religious studies seriously enough. Uh, This is an opportunity to those left behind to, in essence, do better. So his response really stresses uh, the merciful nature of God and the ways that we can improve before the Day of Judgment. Other responses that I've seen take a slightly more negative approach, uh, seeing this as maybe a sign of divine wrath or punishment for sin. Uh, There are theories in some religious groups that influenza will only visit those who are spiritually unclean in some sense. But one of the most fascinating theological responses that I found came from the Presbyterian Church Mm. uh, from Reverend Francis Grimke in Washington, D.C., Uh, He was an African-American and advocated for civil rights. Grimke really stressed the equalizing nature of the epidemic. So he, along with others, pointed out that in times of natural disaster or disease, we are more aware of the power of God's will and the helplessness of modern science relative to that. Uh, But what he really emphasizes in this sermon he delivered in early November is that before the epidemic, everyone is equal. And I quote from him here, how completely the epidemic has shattered the theory so dear to the white man in this country that a white skin entitles its possessor to better treatment than one who possesses a dark skin, end quote. Mm. So to Grimke and I'm sure others, this epidemic really stresses the fact that all people are equal before the Lord. He describes this disease as an opportunity to remember to follow the teachings of Jesus, particularly to love thy neighbor regardless of their skin color. So we really have a lot of variation in meaning-making in response to this tragedy. Mm -hmm. What was its significance, Mike, for uh, Christian scientists, be they leaders or be they members of the church? That's a great question, Jonathan. I think from the accounts that I'm reading, what I find is Christian scientists' approach to uh, disease was uh, different than that of the public at large. But as a religious minority, they also, of course, had to function within society. 
And by and large, Christian scientists didn't seem interested in defying health regulations or pronouncements. The emphasis seemed to be on how to bring healing uh, to those who were afflicted. Unlike some of their co-religionists in other denominations, Christian scientists by and large did not believe that uh, the disease was a sign of, of God's wrath. Uh, rather, you know, they looked at it from the standpoint of the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy that God does not send or cause disease. Because of this, they applied the teachings of the Bible and the Christian science textbook, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, to heal through spiritual means. What I see is that their way of responding, while it varies across geography, really centers around a kind of coming to grips at times with their own experience when they became ill. Uh, many of them would rely on Christian science for healing. At other times, they're trying to understand the best way to aid their neighbors who may not share their religious views, but also need care. And a couple of interesting examples I found referred to uh, groups of Christian scientists volunteering to go into hospitals and assist on the wards with the practical care of the patients. This was military hospitals. And uh, we know about this because of the letters of thanks that they received, for instance, uh, say from a medical officer at a hospital at Camp Beauregard, Louisiana, is one example. And there are others. So just as a kind of final thought from both of you, what was the meaning for you personally and or professionally of delving into this kind of content? Something that sitting with all of these historical voices, looking through these papers uh, has given me is the sense that although what we're experiencing right now feels unprecedented in many ways, it feels new and very scary, um, it is reassuring to see that although the 1918-1919 epidemic will be remembered as a terrible tragedy, people did get through it, society didn't collapse, the world kept turning. Mm -hmm. And that's actually been very motivating to me as I contemplate starting my next master's degree in library science. I'm hoping to complete my degree with an emphasis in archives, reference, and instruction librarianship. Mm. So this was kind of a reminder that the work of historians and people who work to preserve the past actually have a very valuable role to play. Amen. Yeah, Mike, for you, um, anything special that came out of doing this particular research? Well, a, a lot of encouragement, as well as, of course, some sobering things, too. Mm -hmm. One of the encouraging things was to see that many religious groups, and particularly Christian scientists, since that's who I was focused on, displayed and continue to display a remarkable degree of adaptability. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the resources that are available to us now through technology in terms of continuing religious and spiritual activity were not available a hundred years ago, to see the way in which people, when they need to, uh, will pivot almost unbelievably quickly 
to meet the needs uh, that are around them. And the selflessness both then and now has been very inspiring and motivating to me. And, and to me as well, to be with both of you for this recording. Thank you so much, Hannah. Hannah Ellingson from the Department of Religion at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Thanks so much, Hannah. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk with both of you. And thanks so much, Mike Hamilton, Executive Manager of the Mary Baker Eddy Library here in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks, Jonathan. So we hope you'll join us for our next episode of Seekers and Scholars. We're excited to be exploring the story of women in the Matsukata family, a celebrated Japanese family, and their unique bridge between the United States and Japan. We'll be looking at their spiritual and educational legacy in Japanese and American relations during the 20th century. Our guests are Dr. Carol Gluck. She's a professor of history and Japanese studies at Columbia University. Mimi Oka a Christian science teacher and practitioner in New York City, and someone with a long-standing relationship with the Matsukata family, and Sarah Sheldy, who wrote the article on Mio Matsukata that appears on the library's website. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library, copyright 2020.